on, podcasting world? Welcome to yet another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I think this might be episode 170. Whoa. Yeah. We're that's, getting so close to 200. Basically 175. It's about, which four, is basically, it's about four to five away from 175. Which is basically 200. Yeah. We should celebrate now. I know. That's great. Yeah, that's great. We'll probably get there this year. Yeah, oh, for sure. If my math is right. <laughs> well, we just, yeah, I mean, we definitely should. We're back with AJ. AJ, welcome back. AJ's playing with his, we got a lot of buttons back there for him yeah. now. We, we keep adding stuff. There's four cameras going. <laughs> There's only four. And I, he just found out about it like three seconds ago. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's learning on the job. But, uh, so he's back with us today. No no students or guests or anything like that. So, uh, we, we were trying to come up with, you know, a topic today because, you know, like like uh, after 170 usual. episodes, you have trouble coming yeah. up with topics. Plus, you know, we typically wait till three hours before we have to record <laughs> before we come up with one. So, uh, what, it, what we ended up looking through the episodes and realizing that we have never really talked about interstitial cystitis, or also known as bladder pain syndrome. Yes, very fancy, very fancy name for bladder pain. Yeah. So we are going to kind of go through, you know, some of the background information like we do and, and touch on some of the uh, diagnostic stuff. And we're going to touch on the, uh, the medications that are, are utilized um, for managing a patient with interstitial cystitis. For yeah. The first time ever. I like this one because it's not an uncommon issue and it's very strange. Like it's not well understood. So we're going to, we'll get into it and how we can treat some of the symptoms, but just not well understood. Yeah. I actually like things that are not well understood because it makes me feel less dumb. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a lot harder to be wrong when right. there's no way to be right. When you know no one saying? understands it. Yeah, exactly. I love it. So, so uh, you know, as far as, you know, through history, you know, speak, from a historical standpoint, that's the word I'm trying to say, um, interstitial cystitis was kind of like the, um, you know, the gold standard name for the this condition. But um, it's one of those things that uh, it, interstitial cystitis may not really be an accurate term um, because there's not like – clear evidence that true like bladder inflammation or you know cystitis um is like involved in like the underlying condition um and and really what it ends up coming down to by definition is it's chronic bladder pain in the absence of other um you know etiologies or pathogenesis that would explain why that you know pain is happening so it's almost like you rule everything else out and you go it's probably this (laughs) But uh, they they've kind of added the um, the name bladder pain syndrome, um, you know, to kind of make it a little bit more uh, appropriately descriptive. But um, you'll still see it obviously called interstitial cystitis. So if you look at like up to date or Dynamins, that they have it listed as interstitial cystitis slash bladder pain syndrome or Wikipedia, because if you look at Wikipedia, they um, oh, do they credit Dr. Alexander Skeen with coining the term interstitial cystitis in 1887, hmm. and surgeon. Out of Philadelphia, Joseph Parrish published the earliest records of interstitial cystitis in 1836. That's cool. So that could be completely wrong because it's Wikipedia, but it could also be very correct. Oh, it's super right. So if it is correct, we can't blame them. You know, it's not like they knew exactly what was going on down there because they didn't have all the diagnostic imaging that we have now Yeah. to um, figure out what, what it is. But as far as the um, prevalence now, it's more prevalent in women than men, and it's often diagnosed in patients who are 40 years old or older. Um, the prevalence is a bit unclear as far as kind of nailing down uh, the exactly how many people have it. Um, there's varying results from early epi- epidemiologic studies. 
Um, there was one um, trial called the Rice trial that surveyed about 150,000 women um, who had symptoms that would be indicative of um, bladder pain syndrome. And between 2.7 and 6.5% of those women, um, or per percent of women in the U.S., um, have symptoms that would indicate this. Yeah. So um, it's a it's a difficult thing to confirm the diagnosis, but we'll kind of go through um, signs and symptoms that could point you towards it. And the other thing is other, you know, quote-unquote pain syndromes that are kind of hard to to figure out like the underlying condition or exactly what's causing them things like you know fibromyalgia um vulvodynia um even ibs uh, are off also like you know can be seen in, in patients that also have uh, interstitial cystitis so they can kind of like coexist together um and, and really the the ultimate treatment goal is to get the patient to have relief from the pain and discomfort and uh hopefully get back to their original their baseline um, so nothing, uh, nothing too fancy as far as the, the treatment goals. I mean, we're not trying to necessarily fix some sort of a anatomical abnormality or, well, unless that's what's underlying condition, but, um, no, not like infection that we have to cure. We're just kind of trying to figure out the, how we can fix that, that nerve signaling. Right. Treating the symptoms because we don't have an underlying etiology to yeah. treat. So it's unclear, like we said, but there seems to be a genetic component, um, based on some twin studies. Uh, it's also often present with some physical abnormalities um, of the urethra. So I'm going to go through a few. Um, not all of these uh, terms may be well known, but there, just know that there are some uh, abnormalities that can be present. So one is altered bladder epithelial expression of the um, HLA class 1 and 2 antigens. That's a human leukocyte antigen. Uh, another is decreased expression of uroplakin and chondroitin sulfate. Also altered cytokeratin profile uh, towards a profile that's more typical of squamous cells. Um, here's a big one that we'll come back to later, and some of the drugs we use to treat uh, are important here. Um, but it, it has to do with the glycosaminoglycan layer and altered integrity of the glycosaminoglycan layer. Um, so we'll abbreviate that GAG because glycosaminoglycan is annoying to say. But if we talk <laughs> about the GAG later, that's what we're talking about. Um, also, a defect in certain proteins called TAM horsefall proteins, uh, an increase in interleukin expression, so specifically IL-6, um, and adenotriphosphate receptors, specifically the P2X3, um, and then another um, more well-known NF-kappa-B um, gene. There can be enhanced activation of the NF-kappa-B gene, so um, some, you, see, you hear some, some genetic issues. There's also some inflammatory mediator issues there. Um, but those are some things that are frequently uh, accompanying it, but not necessarily the, the primary cause. And when we think of like the urothelial surface, is it, it's typically going to be impermeable to society. It's because of that, the GAG layer of the bladder that Cole was referring to. Uh, however, when that GAG layer is weakened or altered um, and not functioning properly, um, urinary irritants um, can kind of migrate their way through there, penetrate into the uh, urethelium, and that can lead to basically the activation of those underlying uh, nerve and, and uh muscle tissues, um, that's going to then potentially start this cascade where you're going to get further tissue damage, you're going to get more, um, you know, pain uh, sensation or sensations of pain rather. Um, you can start getting some like hypersensitivity. And uh, there's also a component where bladder mast cells um, can play a role too. And that can kind of lead to um, damaging of the, the bladder and uh, also kind of adding on uh, initial, additional um, 
insults to the uh, to, to the surrounding tissue. So um, lots of kind of potential um, pathologies at, at play. Um, and then uh, there's also the thought that patients are having interstitial cystitis um, seem to have like a neurologic um, upregulation of pain sensation. Um, so there's some kind of a component to that. Um, so normal bladder filling, um, basically instead of just making you feel like you need to to, to urinate, um, it, it can actually result in this increased uh, activation of bladder sensory neurons, and that gives you basically that sensation of bladder pain. So when you relieve yourself, then the pain often will go away. Right. Um, I was reading a couple of case studies of patients who it was it was so severe that they were literally just kind of sitting, you know, in the restroom, and you know, for lack of a better term, you know, letting themselves like kind of dribble as soon as they made right. some urine because they just it was so painful they didn't the want any feeling of, of fullness yeah, yeah. The, even the tiniest bit of volume in their bladder would cause pain so that that is rough and obviously can really destroy someone's quality of life so it can't be severe and and yeah it's it's such an interesting issue and you'll see with some of the drugs that we use to treat it um that are frequently used for these syndromes with nerve pain or like fibromyalgia where it's not fully understood the mechanism a lot of central acting pain um Interesting that this can be kind of lumped into that. So there's some clinical symptoms um, to look out for that can point you towards this diagnosis. So um, kind of like Mike mentioned, patients are uh, may report frequent voiding, frequent urination um, to reduce that pain. Um, I'm going to list a few of the um, common symptoms that you might um, see. Um, that Mike, I don't know if you mentioned all of these, but um, frequency during the day, um, an urgency to urinate. Uh, voiding during the night, um, super pubic pain, perineal pain. Um, they might have a sensation of bladder spasms, uh, some pressure in the pubic area, um, dyspareunia, and it can also be associated with um, depression as well. Which that, you know, definitely makes sense. If you have to spend Absolutely. all day in the bathroom. Yeah, that dribbling. would be not ideal. No. You know, I, well, never mind. What? I probably shouldn't say it. Okay. I was just going to say, there's not... <laughs> as he goes on to say it. I'm thinking about the you know nocturnal urination and uh -huh. as we we're males and as we get older it's something that we think mm -hmm. about there's not much worse than waking up and having to urinate really bad mm -hmm. having a very full bladder but there's not much better than going back to bed having emptied that bladder yeah there really isn't it depends on how many hours are left on that alarm clock yes before you have to get up because sometimes it, it happens and there's 30 minutes left yes. and you're like why that's the worst but then sometimes you get lucky but if it's like two three in the morning yeah. you still got three hours left or whatever yep it's like okay like, okay i can do this i can get three more good hours but then if you wake up and it's like an hour hour and a half you're like maybe i could push through this right maybe i shouldn't get up and wake myself up full and go to the bathroom mm -hmm. so i will frequently do that but then i have <laughs> a bad hour and a half of sleep and then I wake up and I'm like running to the bath. This yeah. It's not recommended. So, so you, just get up and do it and get back to sleep. You'll lose a couple of minutes, but it's worth it. I, I feel like now that we've all gotten a little <laughs> glimpse into Cole's life. Um, yeah. So we know him a little bit better now. It's good. These are my struggles. Yeah. He's it's, it's hard out here yeah. for Cole. Um, so patients we've already talked about, um, report that frequent voiding to, you know, reduce that bladder pain. But, um, Cole already mentioned some of the other, um, urgency symptoms and all that, but uh, on a physical exam, like we were saying, you know, the abdominal wall, the pelvic floor, you know, all that can be um, 
you know, it can have some tenderness. Um, but the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is the uh, fatigue associated with it. So patients will often have, um, you know, this kind of underlying fatigue that they can't really figure out why. Uh, a lot of it's probably from being woken in the middle of the night with nocturia and things like that. But um, uh, that, that is often reported uh, with patients who have been diagnosed with interstitial cystitis. Um, and now, the urinalysis itself is typically um, unremarkable um, when you're just dealing with interstitial cystitis, unless there's some kind of other concomitant infection or something like that. Um, but just, if you do a urinalysis, it won't really show anything. So that, you know, if you're thinking like bladder infection and right. whatnot, it may lead you down a different path. Right. So thinking about, so now we've got the clinical symptoms in mind, thinking about how we're actually going to diagnose this and rule out other things, you can kind of um, kind of follow a stepwise algorithm. Um, so first, you have a guy coming in, or a lady, um, with unexplained bladder pain for six weeks or more. So you're going to get a history to evaluate their symptoms, do a physical exam to rule out structural diseases. Um, you also want to get a urine test and get a post-void residual if possible. So post-void residual would be how much urine is left in the bladder uh, after they voided, right? So that'll, that, that, that's important for later on. Um, check their urine. Is it suggestive of a UTI or an STI? If yes, we're going to treat that. If no, is the history or physical suggested of a non-urologic abnormality, like prior pelvic radiation, surgery trauma, something else they've had going on? Is there a pelvic mass or an organ prolapse, something like that? Um, or some sort of other neurologic disorder that's affecting the bladder function? If yes, we're going to refer to a specialist and treat that. If no, then is the history of physical uh, suggestive of a urologic abnormality? Do they have urinary incontinence, which is not usually um, associated with this disorder? Um, do they have elevated post-void residual? Do they have a history of bladder cancer, and is there blood in their urine? If yes, we're referring out. If no, then we think that it's likely... Um, uh, bladder pain syndrome, and we're going to treat it appropriately. To get to the end of the line, you go, it's nothing else, just like definition says. got to be... It's got to be this. Interstitial cystitis. Yeah, when you can't confirm diagnosis well, then it's a diagnosis... What do they call it? A diagnosis of... Uh, I can't think of it. Exclusion. Uh, yeah. Diagnosis of exclusion, right? There you Is go. The right Probably. Thing? I think so. Sounds good. Yeah. So... Another kind of thing we, we can do to kind of um, add to our differential diagnosis um, is in certain patients, depending on, you know, their their history and, and, and the examination as well. So patients who have, um, you know, urologic abnormalities, you know, or when you're kind of getting a history of them, they, they're talking about incontinence or um, elevated uh, post-void, uh, re residual post-void um, urine, and, you know, thinking kind of blood, in, like Cole said, blood in the urine, um, all those kind of things that may kind of lead you down a path that could be something else besides this to get a little, to dig a little bit deeper, um, you can get a procedure called a cystoscopy. Mm. And uh, if you haven't seen one of those, go ahead and Google that. And uh, Or don't. Yeah, well. Sure. Or do you? It's, it's for medical purposes. It, it's horrifying. <laughs> um, basically, they take a, a little tiny uh, scope, if you will, and put it up the urethra so that they can kind of examine the, um, you know, bladder lining and all that stuff. Looking I mean, for I can't imagine. And I can't imagine it's any worse than a cath, right? Catheterization. Couldn't tell you. I couldn't either. I've but been unconscious. Not that those are very pleasant, but, you know, I'm sure it's a similar size. I'd have to Maybe. And they can get those. Have you seen spy technology they can get those cameras really small that's true yeah that's true good point cole yeah thanks so yeah it's not that bad 
get it done. Um, so, uh, the American Urological Association guidelines, um, they, and we've kind of mentioned this already, but they, they use this like quote definition for the diagnosis of interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. Um, they, they in quotes, but, um, an unpleasant sensation, so meaning pain, pressure, discomfort that is perceived to be related to the urinary bladder associated with lower urinary tract symptoms of more than six weeks, like Cole was saying, um, in the absence of infection or other identifiable causes. So they said it a lot more elegantly than can't find any other reason. Yeah, but you know, they it said sounds it, nice. They said it elegantly, but if you, you get you lose track after like the sixth word and they don't listen to the whole thing. So if you can just say there's sentence, nothing else so. that explains it, then yeah. Everybody hears that and understands. Yeah, but they also lose a little bit of faith in your ability. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So it's got to be somewhere in between. We'll make it two lines instead of three lines, and we'll call it a day. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so, again, we, we once we've kind of identified that, um, and, and we've already talked about different clinical symptoms and all that stuff, so we're not going to go through that. Um, Cole already mentioned when it would be um, a good idea to refer to a specialist, you know, to send off to a urologist, so your blood in the urine, um, the complex symptoms where you have not just pain, but also urinary incontinence and things. Um, if there's some kind of a neurological disorder that may be affecting the bladder, uh, those types of things, we mean prostate mass, you know, those types of things, we need to make sure that we're sending off to a specialist um, and, and getting those things taken care of, um, not by primary care or somebody that, you know, may or may not know what they're doing. Not that there's anything wrong with primary care. No, I love primary care. However, God. Special, gotta be careful. They're though, specialties right? for a reason. They're specialties for a reason. Can't get cocky. They've got they've got enough on their plate. Yeah. Okay. So we treating this thing? Let's treat it. So before drugs, um, of course, just like anything else, there's going to be non pharmacologic things you can do. So self care practices and lifestyle modifications can be done to help this. So local heat or cold over the bladder or the perineum area can be um, beneficial to release some of the pain. Um, Talk to patients about avoiding activities or foods or beverages that might worsen symptoms, which anybody with pain is going to automatically do these things anyway if they can associate them with it. Uh, but some might be caffeine, alcohol, artificial sweeteners, um, hot peppers, you know, for those who eat hot peppers three times a day, um, vitamin C-containing foods, interestingly. Uh, but the, um, the Interstitial Societies Association um, – they have a website that does have diet tips to help manage the symptoms and the pain. So um, you can refer patients there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. They got all kinds of good stuff on there. Yeah. More than we could ever hope to talk about in this podcast. <laughs> um, so kind of going on that same, you know, sort of uh, route, we're thinking about certain activities that can potentially worsen bladder symptoms. So certain types of exercises, um, you know, certain recreational activities, sexual activities, body positions, things like that. Um, we obviously want to try to uh, eliminate anything like that that could be making the, uh, the symptoms worse. Um, fluid management um, is something that uh, was kind of debated and really ultimately needs to be individualized for each patient. So there are patients who – you know, they, they basically, as they, like we were talking about earlier, want to avoid constantly so that they're not getting any sort of, um, you know, filling of the bladder. And so those patients' fluid restriction might be beneficial because then, um, you know, you, obviously they're not producing urine. However, there's also a population or a group of the population that has this disorder where they actually can get some uh, relief from uh, kind of – 
getting rid of that that bladder it makes them feel better once their bladder kind of fills and then they can can uh, can dump it and so those patients actually might do better with uh, a little bit more fluid so it, any the bottom line is it needs to be individualized so um, the most you know typically speaking on average most patients are not going to need like two liters of or, or more than two liters of fluid per day um, and regardless of what the patient ends up you know kind of having as their goal uh, fluid intake uh, we want to make sure that we're at least reminding them to monitor their the urine color making sure it's that pale yellow color so they're not even either getting too too hydrated or dehydrated um make sure they're staying in a nice balance yes um we don't need to add hyponatremia and all kinds of stuff to that right. um so uh bladder training um is also a technique that can potentially help some patients yes so um we mentioned that patients may experience pelvic floor muscle tenderness when you're examining them and you want to assess um palpate that and assess whether the pain is reproducible. Um, you can actually do pelvic physical therapy um, to improve this. So um, 12 weeks of that alone or in combination with pharmacologic therapy. So there was a trial back in 2012, a small trial with 81 women um, who had bladder pain syndrome as well as pelvic floor muscle tenderness. And they were randomized between receiving traditional full body therapeutic massage or pelvic floor myofascial physical therapy. Um, so the pelvic floor myofascial physical therapy showed to have more improvement in moderate or marked symptoms, 59% of patients versus 29% of the, um, the uh, full body therapeutic massage patients. So that is a, an interesting thing to consider if, um, if they're having that issue. Yeah, I will say both do sound enjoyable though. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever. Let's talk about some pharmacological options. So the first one that uh, we kind of have is like a first line agent. Um, some of this, th there's not really any solid head to head uh, trials. I mean, there's some some meta analyses and things like that, but um, we kind of think of first line agents as uh, as our TCAs, our um, tricyclics. Uh, basically, we have amitriptyline is the one that's most commonly um, utilized in this particular situation. Um, although none of them are technically um, FDA approved right. for it, um, but amitriptyline seems to be uh, the the agent that most um, clinicians are using. Um, the starting dose is only 10 milligrams at bedtime um, because we want to make sure that we're avoiding the slew of adverse effects that come along with amitriptyline, and uh, they basically recommend that every you know week or so, depending on the patient's tolerance, uh, we can kind of um, escalate the dose uh, weekly. And so if you start at 10 milligrams at bedtime, you know we're thinking going up to 25 and 50, 75, maybe 100. Um, but there, what the important thing to keep in mind is that uh, when they've looked at dosing strategies for amitriptyline specifically, um, it, it you know, 50 milligrams and higher, 50 to 100 milligrams, that range is really where you see the most benefit. Um, the 10 milligrams, 25 milligrams, those, uh, they can help a little, but not nearly as significant um, symptom relief as the higher doses. However, the higher doses come with the uh, slew of adverse effects. So we all know amitriptyline, we're thinking anticholinergic effects. So, you know, all the, the dry mouth and the blurred vision and um, urinary incontinence potentially, uh, all kinds of... Uh, um, you know, issues with uh, that just in general. Um, but we also have, you know, sedation, we have um, potential weight gain, um, we have uh, orthostatic hypotension, we have um, cardiac conduction abnormalities with the QT prolongation. Um, and it's just one of those things that we have to really look at the patient's comorbidities and um, whatever else they could 
have kind of going on, you know, before we continue to push that dose. So ideally we want to get it to 50 to 100, you know, 75 we'll say on average, but we are doing it based on what the patient can tolerate and can do safely. If it's an older patient, we probably don't want to be pushing the dose on amitriptyline if we can help it. Um, that being said, though, with amitriptyline, we would expect to see the actual interstitial cystitis symptoms um, being noticeably uh, reduced within the first month of taking that therapy. So um, that potentially can be some good news for patients. Yes, and that's interesting because Elevil or amitriptyline is one that we think of for like centrally acting pain syndromes too and migraines and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So so interesting that it can it can work for this as well. Um, so there is one drug that um, has a specific indication for interstitial cystitis, and the brand name is Elmeron, but that's pentosan polysulfate sodium. Um, so its mechanism harkens back to what we talked about earlier, that GAG, the glycosamine glycan layer. So it reconstitutes the deficient protective GAG layer over the urothelium. So that can be beneficial in relieving the pain. Um, the dosing is interesting. It's 100 milligrams three times a day. Uh, wah, wah. Yes, which is a bummer. Um, but with pain syndromes, people are usually willing to take things um, uh, more multiple more often um, than they do other other long-term disease states. Though the relief of symptoms can take a while, three to six months after initiation. If you're looking at the label, um, it recommends treating for three months, reevaluating, potentially going for an additional three months. Um, but there's interestingly not a lot of data past six months um, of therapy, even though a lot of patients do take it longer than that. So it, the the indication is is for six months. Um, uh, but you have to monitor for macular eye disease um, from the Elmeron. So most cases have taken place uh, for patients who've taken the medication for a long time, more than three years. Um, so you want to get a detailed ophthalmologic history um, in all patients prior to starting. Uh, patients who have a pre-existing eye condition get a comprehensive baseline retinal exam before starting therapy. Um, and a retinal examination is suggested for all patients within six months of starting and periodically uh, while continuing for those who continue um, past the six months. And the six-month um, indication on the label is more for patients who don't see benefit within that six months. If you haven't seen any benefit by six months, probably not going to continue it. But if you are, then you can then you can continue it. So I've even seen some uh, clinicians start basically amitriptyline and Elmeron at the same time. Hmm. Um, I guess to, because while we're titrating up the amitriptyline, we're waiting for the Elmeron to finally kick in. So I it kind of makes sense. My problem with that would be can't tell if it's working. Yeah, or which one's it's working. hard to tell which one's actually working, and like, do you really need both of them, or would it be? Just, yeah. So I'm not a huge fan of that strategy. I would think using some of the adjunctive therapies that we're going to talk about would probably maybe be a little bit better. Right. But what do I know? Um, yeah, what do we know? I'm not a urologist. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so adverse effects we already talked about obviously the big you know kind of warning that we have to watch out for with Elmeron but um, also can cause a lot of GI upset specifically nausea diarrhea um, there's also some uh, hair loss that can be associated with it um, now typically that is kind of um, you know goes back to baseline once you stop the medication but nobody likes to lose their hair That's, no yeah just ask just ask me who's losing it without Elmeron well you know you know what I'm losing what are you losing my beard hair what yeah you know why why the masks I'm not even kidding. I what? was I didn't understand it for a while. I thought I was just like I was like, wow, the hair on my beard is just falling out. <laughs> but the reason uh, it's specific contact points from the mask, and then also my mustache where I used to pull my mask with mm-hmm. my two, both my thumb and, and index finger, all the time when I was working my other job. Great. 
Yeah. Just another thing the masks did. <laughs> I tell taking, you what. Now they're taking our beards away. I tell this you is what. preposterous. There's nothing worse. Oh my gosh. I just had to, I had to get off my chest. No, that was good. It's terrible. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Just be careful with your masks. <laughs> just kidding. For those for those bearded brothers. <laughs> yeah. And just, sisters, I guess. Just kidding. Um, so uh, the other thing is um, some mild elevation in liver function enzymes, but that is pretty rare. But it, it can happen. Um, now. Kind of thinking about improvement of symptoms, we already talked about amitriptyline, um, and you know we saw some pretty significant reductions in symptoms. But there was a, a 2019 meta-analysis um, looking at Omeron compared to placebo, and basically the patients in the, the Omeron group had 12% improvement in overall symptoms, 12% um, improvement in pain over placebo, and 9% improvement in urgency um, compared to placebo. So not as impressive as I was hoping for. No. But, but when you consider that there's nothing else that's actually been, but you're right. If it, if it's going to get an FDA approval for that, yeah, come pre- on, pretty wimpy, right? That's like the uh, it's like that monoclonal antibody for Alzheimer's. They're like it, yeah. kind of works barely. Let's yeah. have, FDA approve it. Yeah, good to go. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was very controversial. Very. Got a lot of emails about that. And I was like, <laughs> well, I don't know why you guys want my opinion. Yeah. My uh, my wife works in memory disorders. So yeah, it was like all the what? Yeah, it was a mess. I'm sure. It was for like. I won't get. I'm gonna say something wrong, but it was it was for much more mild. Yeah, Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. And still, the data wasn't great. So, like, if it had progressed further, anything like, past like mild. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that yeah. was that was the issue. But at least it's cheap. <laughs> right. Yeah. Infusion. Infusions are always oh, cheap. always cheap. That's a fact. Um. So back to business. Hydroxazine. Um. So we're familiar with hydroxazine for various different things. Um. It's kind of like Benadryl's cousin, but it's an antihistamine. Um. For patients who have uh, bladder pain syndrome plus an allergic disorder. So they have seasonal allergies or asthma or insomnia, nocturia. Um, you can use this, and the mechanism kind of makes sense because it's going to give you some anticholinergic effects, right? Um, one of the one of the four is can't pee in the um, algorithm in the uh, saying that we all know. So it can it can it might help with a I don't know a little bit of urgency and also might knock you out so that you're sleeping better. I don't I don't totally know, um, but usually. The, the dose is 25 to 50 milligrams at bedtime. Um, adverse effects would be sedation and dizziness, caution in elderly patients. Um, usually they would see a response in a few days. There is a study of 61 patients that showed a trend towards a greater response when they're given hydroxyzine versus placebo, so um, could be effective there. I don't know. How do you feel about that? So some, some resources have it listed as like second or third line. But that's up to date. Made a point of that too. They're like, there's not really any data. Yeah, I was about to say it. that's pretty wimpy. Like, yeah, so it's one of those things that you know, I would say it's as long as it's not going to cause any issues from the side effect profile. Yeah. Um, and if the patient is having issues sleeping, but even then, like you don't want to give an histamine for, for insomnia for it's long term. Idea, yeah, no. you're not getting solid sleep. So. But in in hydroxine really is like one of the is probably the most potent yeah. histamine, which it gets for fun fact if you guys uh, don't know this it gets metabolized into cetirizine so that's why we consider cetirizine to be like the most uh sedating sedating of the second gens antihistamines yeah it's basically a direct metabolite of hydroxyzine i mean i guess my, the, the thought i mean my thought would be less urine less feeling fullness less pain overnight mm-hmm. but um yeah it seems like there's a lot of side effects for maybe a inadequate uh, response and and kind of sticking on the same idea of like like a, having an allergic disorder on top of the interstitial cystitis there's also been some uh, um, groups that have tried to use uh, montelukast with mm. not great results but um, that's that's another thing that they've looked at which 
You know, I, I to me, it's like if you have seasonal allergies, the go-to agent is not hydroxazine. hydroxazine so, I mean, I get that sometimes. Um, let's say with uh, migraines, mm-hmm. we might use a lesser agent to kind of kill two birds. Like mm-hmm. if a patient, you know, Elevil, they might get a good response to Elevil, and then they're also having sleep issues. I never would use Elevil by itself for sleep, even though it's done all the time. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, well, we're treating their migraines. Maybe it'll help with sleep some, a little bit. So maybe that's the thinking. Oh, it'll help with their interstitial cystitis, and maybe it may also help with this comorbidity, even though we wouldn't have used that first line for it. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That's, I'm, I'm literally just spitballing. So. Yeah. I don't know. That's, what, I, that's what we do here. Because my first response was, I don't really like that idea. Yeah. For, no, I agree. And well, especially since there's zero data that shows that it works. Yeah. Compared to placebo, it was, barely beat it. And it I don't even think it was statistically when, significant. When the wording is there's a trend towards greater <laughs> response, trend. that means not statistically yeah, significant that means versus your placebo. Drug sucks. Yeah. So I don't so, know. Maybe not great. That's good. That should be our new motto for core console. Like your drug sucks. No, no, no. no. Well, maybe, but like the uh, depends on the drug. But um, be like pure, you know, core console RX. 80% of the time, we're spitballing. <laughs> That'll be AJ. I thought you were going to say. We're going to get that on t-shirts. I thought AJ. you were going to say, Core Consult RX, a trend towards greater uh, response. I, I did. That's a good one. That's kind of catchy. Yeah. I did uh, say. Uh, on and in parentheses, it says not statistically significant. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah. T- trending towards significance. <laughs> but uh, I told you I was going to put it, make a shirt. The, the next Core Console shirt was going to just say a all equals trash. No, no other explanation. Yeah, that's it. And just see what how many. People actually would wear that. Yeah, there's a picture of your dog turning its nose away because Dr. Bird wouldn't give it to his dog. That's right. Yeah, he used to say that. Yeah, I guess. Well, I guess he probably still does. Um, I don't think he's changed his opinion on atenolol. <laughs> um, so some adjunctive treatments that we can potentially use, or you know, if you will, uh, rescue analgesics. Um, typically, just over the counter um, ibuprofen or acetaminophen will help. Um, you don't have to use anything crazy as far as the higher doses. You can use OTC dosing, and, and as long as you're using something like amitriptyline on to really get control of the symptoms. Um, you know, further down the road, like this can kind of help while we're waiting for those to kick in. Um, we also have urinary analgesics, so, so phenazoperidine. Um, now, if you are going to give a patient that, it's something we should try to keep to like two days or so. Um, we also uh, need to be aware that it has uh, renal dose adjustments, and we really don't even want to use it if the EGFR is less than 50 mils per minute. No. Um, long-term use is associated with not just like renal toxicity or in liver dysfunction, um, but, uh, all kinds of other, you know, potential adverse effects. And, um, we just need to make sure we're staying away from that long-term. It's a very temporary thing. Usually, uh, every eight hours for like two days, three days, maybe the most, and then call it a day. Similarly, we have methenamine, mm-hmm. which you guys probably more associated with it with UTIs and stuff, but it's also contraindicated. Well, not also cause phenazepiridine isn't, but it's contraindicated in patients with CKD and hepatic impairment, also avoid in patients uh, with gout. But um, yeah, probably, you know, probably not going to work all that great. Um, patients experiencing an acute episode um, who have not found relief from the urinary analgesics or from the other treatments. So there are some other options. So one is um, intravesical installation of lidocaine with heparin and or sodium bicarb. It's very interesting. Lidocaine yeah. can be combined with other intravesical therapies and and what's weird is they have uh, i think it, most like facilities or clinics have like their own concoction if concoction. you will yeah because so where is this going um so they're, you're putting it directly into the bladder nice. um, using a urinary catheter um but uh so first you get the cytoscopy right is that what it was yeah so yeah by that point you're a professional and now you get this you don't you're just like yeah whatever and then you get the cath afterwards my urethra is uh, invincible yeah 
though. Um, the all kinds of different medications. So, the, like Kate Cole mentioned, the lidocaine um, and uh, potentially sodium bicarb. Uh, sometimes they will even use like solumedrol. Um, some some uh, clinicians will add in like gentamicin. Um, there's some uh, glycosamine glycans, so like heparin or hyaluronic acid. Um, there's a lot of different things that uh, can kind of be put together. Gentamicin. Um, yeah. They, yeah, and well, in fact, what's funny is the uh, the authors that wrote the um, interstitial cystitis treatment uh, portion of up on the up to date mm-hmm. um, page is is basically say their go to kind of combination is lidocaine or they also use bivacaine or, or bupivacaine, um, gentamicin, heparin, solumedrol, sodium bicarb. Um, that's their combo. they put that all together, and it says uh, the potential uh, adverse effects of bladder. Um, the installations include urinary tract infections, dysuria, urethral ir- irritation. Who would have ever guessed that? And uh, increased bladder pain. Increased bladder <laughs> pain seems counterintuitive. AJ, am I losing it? Or? No. Okay. So we're going to okay. treat your diabetes, but it could possibly just worsen your, your diabetes. diabetes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So funny, right? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's lots of different ways to do it. So it's probably just going to be whatever urology is put together. See, the bladder pain just happens if they poke a little too far. I, I mean, I, you know. yeah, I can imagine. Could you, it Just might cause right a it. little bit of uh, urethral irritation <laughs> as we've scoped you 15 times <laughs> to figure out what's going on. I guess Sounds I might awful. want that lidocaine combo first because maybe there's some hanging around on the catheter and it just oh, yeah. kind of slips into urethra I that guess. numbs it up a little bit and now you can do the cytoscopy. I'd be drinking lidocaine. Like, hopefully this will work <laughs> faster. Please don't drink lidocaine. Get, get, a, uh, get, get some kind of an arrhythmia. <laughs> gargle and spit. Yeah, gargle and spit. Um, so, yeah, so there's some other things um, – that are kind of uh, reserved, but um, so because we there could be a neuropathic component, Lyrica could be an option, um, gabapentin could be an option. There's not really any data to support it. Um, there's cimetidine, which is an H2 blocker, lots of drug drug interactions, limited data. Um, also, sildenafil, data doesn't support its use, however, it is used by some clinics. So, there you go. There's a, there's a couple other like random you know, agents as well. It's like things like, um, Botox, uh, there's yeah. cyclosporin A, um, and that's specifically for patients who have, um, hunter lesions, um, associated with their, uh, interstitial cystitis. And when, when a patient has those hunter lesions, we didn't really talk about what that, you know, means, but, um, when the patient has those, um, you know, is dealing with those hunter lesions on top of their symptoms, um, the cyclosporin A, when it was compared to, um, Elmeron directly, and it was significantly more effective in that particular um, patient population. So something to think about. Um, but yeah, so that's the the vast majority of patients. You could probably get away with just your amitriptyline and some yeah. adjunctive therapies. And um, you know, the more severe patients, obviously, you may have to dig a little deeper. But that's a uh, big thing is rolling out the other stuff. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Definitely don't miss. Don't Make miss sure there's nothing stuff, big for sure. But yeah, I like I like doing stuff we haven't done before. Yeah, and Mike had mentioned that we think we had done other urinary stuff like the um, incontinence yeah. at some point. Somebody missed. I think somebody emailed this, which I must have been a long time. Email them back, but um, they had uh, emailed asking about um, urinary urgency. Yeah, and so, so we got to. There's a lot of pharmacologic stuff there. Yeah, there so is. we so. can hit that at some point. Yeah, I promise, guys. I, we are going to answer your emails eventually. I have like a list, and I, I pin them now, and I'm just—it just keeps getting longer. And I'm like, oh boy. So, I, I need uh, I need AJ to step it up and answer all my emails now. He's too busy like in school and stuff like that. It's very <laughs> annoying. But uh, 
I hope that was somewhat helpful. Um, you know, we'll, uh, if you guys have any questions, send us an email. We will do our best to answer those or at least point you in the direction of someone who can answer it better than we can. Um, and then next time we do this, we'll have to bring on, like, we'll have to find a urologist to come on and uh, really go deeper. Do you know, do you know a urologist? Um, not, I mean, I, I know people that know neurologists, like, or urologists. Like, I mean, urologists. Through, yeah, through the grapevine. Um, I don't know them personally, but yeah. I feel like we could, that's what LinkedIn's for. That's what it's for. That's the only reason it was invented, so people can come on their podcast. But, uh, yeah, so thank you guys for listening. I hope that was helpful. Um, you know, thanks for sticking with us, you know, for all this time, getting close to episode 200. We greatly appreciate it. Great. Um, you know, we will do our best to answer uh, your your messages, whether it's email or on social media. And then uh, also, too, make sure you check out Patreon if you like more of the um, non-interrupting with tangent uh, style lectures and, you know, what I would call boring stuff with PowerPoint slides and all that, you know, good, good, good. Um, check out Patreon. It's, it's pretty uh, affordable for the amount of content that's on there now. And, uh, um, you know, we'll keep on cranking up. Once the PA school starts back, we'll have uh, a couple lectures going up every single uh, week on Patreon. So be a lot more content coming, coming your way. So hope that's helpful. Hope you guys are liking it. And uh, we'll catch you guys in the next one. Have a good one.